remain standing for prayer just for a second because, uh, wow, that's, you know, the praise team always does a great job, but what, what better set and what better song to, uh, to sing at what is really, in effect, Back to School Sunday. I mean, I think it's really Back to School Sunday. And I know so many families have been involved in that hectic process of maybe getting kids off to college and, and then getting back, or uh, getting other kids that finally, almost every school district is back to in-person learning, and all the parents said, amen, and uh, back to in-person learning, but there's, you know, they're, after having been out of that for a while, there's a lot of anxiety associated with that. So I want us to take just a moment at the beginning of this service this Sunday and pray for the teachers and pray for the students and uh, make sure that we cover them as well as yourselves and, uh, and all of us at this time. So just bump elbows with your neighbor if you would. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and the Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for what uh, you've done in our midst. I want to thank you that, Lord, as people come in here and they see what we have in Christ, the peace that we have, the trust in your faithfulness, that you can bring everything to pass that you have for us. And there's nothing that the world, the flesh, or the devil can do to stop that as long as we're in the Word. And, 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 and Lord, the Word of God will do the work. I pray that it will do that work today and this year. For all of our students who are going off to school, Lord, and maybe have started at the end of last week and go back in earnest this next week, for all of those that we have in our congregation who are teachers. And Lord, I remember especially both our teachers, our first responders, our nurses and medical people that we have, uh, because Lord, they're on the front lines at a difficult time, and it's a difficult time that we've had for a while, but uh, they're out there willingly working and Lord, I pray that you'd enable them both to uh, serve the community, but also serve you uh, as, as they're involved with kids and with others. And so, Lord, I pray for them today. Undertake for us, Lord. Get, open your word. Open our eyes to your word today. Holy Spirit, speak to us so we leave here changed, different than the way we came in. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated in the Lord's presence. If you got to your Bible, we're going to invite you to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter seven. So you know, this is kind of the first of a school year, new school year, and uh, you know, I, I will remind. Um, let me say a word, especially to anyone in here who is under forty. So if you're thirty something, if you're twenty something in particular, um, ter- the volume is turned up really for you. Uh, with regard to our schooling that we have as a church, among, among other things, but especially for the adults, we have our Living Faith Bible Institute. So we have a Bible Institute. We participate with uh, Midtown Baptist Temple and some others, and most of the classes are live taught down there. We have a, a viewing group here, as do uh, actually about, we have students from 57 churches and uh, over 400 students enrolled, and I am teaching 1 Corinthians, and we started yesterday, 
but you have one more week. You have until this Saturday to actually go in and apply, and I, I, maybe it's $10 to apply, something like that. Credits, take it for credit. Everybody who just says, well, I'm just going to audit. Oh, you know, 80% of those people come back later on saying, oh, I wish I'd just taken that for credit. I, I don't want to have to take it again. I should have just taken it for credit, uh, you know, back at that time. So I encourage you to do that. $40 a credit hour, that is one-tenth the cost of any of the Bible colleges in the area. And the teaching is, now I've been to Bible college, so I know teaching is much better. I'm just saying, teaching is much better. And not just because I'm teaching, but we are doing First Corinthians because that's a handbook on ministry. That's a handbook on planting churches. That is a handbook on what God wants to do with us. And so 16 weeks for those 16 chapters we will have together. But there are a number of other courses on counseling and Genesis and I don't know, uh, some other things uh, that are there. So we're going to try and have viewing groups probably starting at least at 9 o'clock on Saturdays uh, so you can catch the 9.30 class, which uh, also we have our discipleship too uh, at that time. I guess it's at technically a 9.45 class, and then I teach at 11.30, so it'll go to about 1 o'clock. And, uh, you know, I encourage you especially. Now, if you're over that age, if you're older than that, that doesn't mean you're used up. That just means that many of the people in our congregation that are older than 40 uh, are involved in places and have been through some training. But certainly, certainly if you're younger than that, I told the, uh, I told my class yesterday as I taught, I was here at the beginning, starting at eight yesterday, and then went down to Midtown to teach uh, at 1130. And I told the group that was there physically present and whoever was watching uh, that, uh, you know, I I tell people all the time, you need to get involved today. You need to start today in signing up for these things because you don't know what God might have for you three years from now, four years from now, five years from now. You want to be ready. Don't be playing catch up. It is too late to be playing catch-up. We have too little time left before Jesus returns. So I just, I encourage you that way. So here we are at the first of the year. And, you know, I had, I think one teacher did this one time. I don't remember what grade it was or what uh, topic it may have been. But the teacher gave us, at the first of the year, the test we were expected to pass at the end of the year. And of course, nobody passed it, and you know it was it was the hardest test of the year. But I really appreciated that because it taught me what I needed to learn my way up to. And then at the end of the year, when we took the same test, there was a, such a sense of accomplishment. That is the last half of Romans chapter seven. So Romans chapter seven is a hard test. I'm just saying, this is going to be one of those days. This is going to be one of those Sundays. This is a hard test day. But when we get into chapter 8 through chapter 16, especially chapter 12 through chapter 16, so, so Paul's telling us now what we have to learn our way up to. But then he gives us all the rest of the instruction through the rest of this book. So let me start it off this way. I don't know if you've ever been in some temptation and you fall into it and you immediately ask yourself, what was I thinking? 
who has not felt struck with conviction and guilt and shame? And it's like, where did that come from? How can I even do that? Why would I ever say that? I mean, how can this be me? What is causing me to think like this and live like this and pile up regrets when I don't want to? But since you're not yet feeling me like I need you to, let me give you an experiential explanation of our dysfunctional dilemma. This is number one. Who among us does not deal with sin and heartbreaking inconsistencies we see in our own selves? Who among us does not kick ourselves because of something we said or something we did or something we thought? Who among us does not have hurtful memories that haunt us when Satan pokes us with our past? And yet, and this is number two, it's not in our hearts to act that way. And and all it seems to take is one weak, unthinking moment, and then what comes out of us is so contrary to who we are in Christ. But this is number three, it is not something we ever plan to do. And it's not something premeditated. It, 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 it's like it snuck up on us. And so in the final analysis, number four, it's not something we ever really wanted. And I, and I have found that a lot of formal dysfunction and a lot of family dysfunction is caused by adults living in regret for a choice that they never wanted to make in the first place. And that is so sad, and yet we sometimes find ourselves repeating over and over again those same things we never wanted to commit in in the first place. So I relate to Paul uh, in this passage when he says down in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So before we leave this Sunday... I want to answer, how can I get right? What is wrong with me? Why am I stuck in the same pit, in the same sin over and over again? Let me take you to our text because Paul is in a moment of transparency and vulnerability. And he lets us see what's going on inside. And it's kind of a left-handed encouragement to us, I think, uh, in our own struggle. Martin Luther said, you know, when I became a Christian, I thought I drowned the old man, but I found out he's a very good swimmer. The rascal's really good swimmer. So Paul's not describing a lost person in these verses. Paul is not describing yet in, in this passage. He does, he, he does in 1 Corinthians. That's why you ought to come out uh, with us. But uh, he's not describing here the carnal Christian. But, and this is our thesis for today's study, in Romans 7, verses 12 to 25, Paul's describing himself. In the reality between Romans 6, identity truths, and being a Romans 8, overcomer. So, Paul uses the personal pronoun I 46 times in verses 7 to 25. And what he shows us uh, is that the closer you get to God, the more you see your own sinfulness. And they're actually, those are actually marks of a spiritually mature believer. Someone who's honest with themselves and with God. So 
If you are concerned about such deep struggles in your own heart, you are on the right path. I want to affirm to you, you're on the right path. Stay there and do not let society's warped sense of psychology and deficient definition of mental health remove you from that path. So I want you to watch. I want you to let these four verses we're going to look at next correct you. Okay, they're on the back of your handout if you want to uh, see them there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. And then in Romans seven eighteen, he said, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And then in Ephesians 3, 8, he says, Unto me who am less than the least of all the saints. Do you see the progression here, if you can call it that, least of the apostles, wait, wait no, hold it, uh, that was back in 1 Corinthians, I've, uh, you know, it's 10 years later now, and uh, Ephesians, I'm less than the least of any of the saints, and finally, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, at the end of his life, he says, you know, this is really faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. So that's a definite progression in retrogression, and yet this is the Pauline pattern of growth. So you start to see why all the so called Christian counselors are so confused. Uh, because Paul is a brand new creature in Christ. The old soul has been crucified in Christ, but the mortification of the body is a struggle. For the reason stated here, if you'll look at verse 19 of Romans 7, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. I mean, he doesn't like to sin. As a matter of fact, he despises it. He, he wants in his heart to be a righteous man. But there's this principle operating that bonds death to his life. And so he finds himself doing what he does not want. Now, I am so glad that Paul opened up to us like this. I mean, how can I be a Christian and be stuck in so much junk? Well, today we get an intimate look at how to come unstuck from your sin. Anybody want to hear this? Just say, I'm afraid, Alan. And I'm afraid that if I say yes, person next to me is going to feel, you know, think really badly of me. Uh, like, you know, he's going to know I'm stuck and, and all that. Okay, so I'll take, I'll even take silence as consent because first off, notice if you will, this is number one. We have a new passion for righteousness, for true righteousness. A lost person does not have a passion for godliness. I mean, they want to look good. I don't have a passion for godliness. I mean, Christ-likeness is not lost humanity's main objective. And uh, too many Christians even are satisfied to settle and settle for a surface righteousness. For a righteousness defined by their own conscience, their own culture, their own crowd. And that is not the person that Paul is describing here, which is why he is willing to describe himself so intimately. Okay, watch. Verse 15, watch. For what I would do. Verse 18, watch. For to will 
is present with me. Verse 19, the good that I would do. Verse 21, when I would do good. And that's the testimony of Paul as to his disposition and his inclination. I mean, he clearly wants true spirituality. Why? Well, first, and this is letter A, because our desire has changed. Because we got saved. So the first thing that has to bow, bend, and break, even for you to get saved, is your stubborn will. Because you're not saved if you didn't make Jesus Christ your Lord. Praying the prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. So you, so you kind of got to make, you know, ask him to be your Lord. And Lord means he's master and master means your servant. And, but once you do that, then you want the same things that God wants. So this is our first point for study. When you get saved, God puts you in Christ. He puts the Holy Spirit in you. And he gives you a heart to want what God wants and do the things that he wills. So you love God first, you assemble with your spiritual family, you give God at least a tithe off the top of your, as a first fruit of what he's given to you. You have a desire for the sincere milk of the word. You want to grow. You want to love your neighbor. You may still be working on that, but you want to love him, man. And you put Christ in the center and you put his mission above everything else. Because now you have eternity in your heart. So second, you have a new passion, and this is letter B, because your nature has changed. Do you even know what happened to you since you got saved? I mean, this is why you need to take an LFBI class this semester, Living Faith Bible Institute class. And I, you know, I'll just let you know a little secret. Don't don't tell any of the other churches this, but if you apply, I will approve you. I'm just saying, you know, and I know in theory we would like to uh, uh, show you that you are on a, a, you know, we have a plan as a church. Many churches don't. They start with evangelism and they end with evangelism. They don't get very far beyond that. But we actually go from evangelism, you know, winning your Christ to discipleship. Those 16 lessons where we communicate the basic fundamental concepts of Christian walk. Because we want you to turn around and disciple others. We want to be a disciple-making church. But then we have a discipleship too, which is all sorts of stuff, including how to study your Bible. And then we have our Living Faith Bible Institute. And I, you know, I don't know if I'm just kind of a rebel at heart, but I am happy to I am happy to help anyone in here jump the line. I'm happy to help you jump the line. I don't care, at this point, I don't care what you haven't been through. Um, because, because my thing is, it's only Bible. Why would I keep you from getting Bible? On, on whatever level, for whatever topic, in whatever thing you want to get it. But this is why you need to take a class. There are 33 things that happened to you when you got saved. Say, Alan, like what? Well, like Galatians 5.24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Really? Did you know you are crucified in Christ? Colossians 3.3, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
Well, that'll change things, won't it? I mean, that'll change a lot of things. Pandemic, politics, protests. I mean, this changes it all. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Okay, you can read some things into that period at the end of that verse. They become new in the way you look at them. It may be old stuff, but you look at it a totally different way. It's new. So, so now, I mean, neither Democrat nor Republican, neither majority nor minority, neither affluent nor in poverty, neither nuclear family nor no family. I mean, it's all become new. But, but so what? Well, so, Ephesians 4, verses 22-24, you are able to put off concerning the old conversation, the old man. Which is corrupt, and I love that word conversation. I know we tend to limit it to mean what you say with your mouth, and in the King James Bible it means what you did with your life. But frankly, frankly speaking, the way, the reason the King James translators, the James gang was so smart in the way that they translated your Bible, and then God said stop, and for 280 years, it was the only Bible we have in English. I mean, either it's the Word of God in English, or we have never had it. And we never will. There's a lot less certainty about the Bible today than there was back then. But okay, the reason that they said it this way is because usually how you live shows up through your mouth. And the old man inside kind of comes out in your words. And it is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness how how are we able to do that well second peter 1 verses 3 and 4 we're able to do that because according to his divine power God's own power he has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness In what way? How did he get that to us? Through knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Wait, that is discipleship. And that's part of progressive sanctification. And that's the part that's on you. This part, that's on you. But through it, verse 4, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Through discipleship. We get that. And discipleship too, and, and LFBI. We, we start getting in the Word, and we get all of those things, and we start collecting our treasure, and then we start using it like we should, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. And that's how you, you will be having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I wish these two passages were close together so I could have you run a rail, but since they're not kind of on the same page or facing pages together, we can't really run a rail. You'll just have to put Second uh, Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 in the margin of Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, and Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 in the margin of Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, and then you'll have to kind of just highlight the phrases in Ephesians, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and then the phrase in Second Peter... Well, that by these promises you might be, you've escaped the corruption that is in the world through that lust. The word of God does the work.
That's why biblical authority is so important. And I care what you say. I don't care how you, you know, I'm just a bottom line person. (laughs) I'm just a bottom line person. Okay, if it's not King James, what is it? Show me, tell me, give me, show me one. Show me one, show me one, any other translation, which in the footnotes does not throw doubt upon the way they translated their stuff. I'm just saying, I, you know, we're kind of, the reason that we're in the, in the way we's in is, is because what we believe about the Bible, and we have no biblical authority, and that's why the, having an authoritative Bible translation is so important to us, because modern translations mess with your spiritual DNA. I don't, you know, I don't, why should I care what, the government and anybody else thinks they could inject into me to change my DNA. I, I mean, praise the Lord. I made my decisions for the Lord. And I, and I kind of don't think, I kind of know from the Bible that prior to the rapture, nothing's going to happen that's going to change human free will. So, I, you know, but uh, devil, you know, devil gets us so off base. The problem is not. Physical. The, the problem is our spiritual DNA has been messed with. And now we're off track and now we don't. We're not able to partake of that divine nature in the same robust way. And we do not get the antibodies that we need against the corruptions of the lust in this life. And, and other yeah, translations, they don't give you the certainty of words of truth. As a matter of fact, that whole verse has changed in all of those translations. So second, on the other hand, we have a new attitude toward God's law. One kind of lost person is simply lawless as, in terms of God's definition of sin. But the kind of person Paul was before he got saved was not lawless. He was a legalist. So just like the Pharisees that Jesus condemned, Paul was using the law unlawfully, in other words, a too strict application, because he used it to attain self-righteousness. And when the Jerusalem church was considering whether to mandate circumcision for Gentiles who got saved, Peter said in Acts 15 verse 10, Now therefore, why tempt ye God? Why are you tempting God? To put a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither you nor your fathers, we nor our fathers, were able to bear. So trying to keep up with the law becomes an overwhelming burden for anybody. And Paul found that out. If you look at verse 10 of Romans 7, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. And that's because, and this is our second point for study, God's law is simply his divine definition of sin. It's not designed to get you anywhere, take you anywhere. It's just designed to define sin. So the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us because verse 12 says, The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So both the lawless and the legalist are lost. But we have a new attitude since, and this is letter A, we understand it. Since because we understand it, we delight in it. The law is a reflection of the holiness available to us, not through it, but through the power of Christ. So that the righteousness that, that, that we can progress to is reflected by 
what's said in the law. And Christ's likeness is watching myself starting to measure up to that. So David confesses in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Second, we have a new attitude, and this is letter B, because we're concerned with the spirit of the law, not just technical righteousness. To a Pharisee, appearance is 90% of acceptance. I, you know, this takes, that kind of triggers me. This takes me back because before I ever became a pastor, I was, I worked for the city, Kansas City as an engineering aide, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, I did, uh, a number of things, but among that was, uh, a, a certain construction inspe- inspection. And there were certain jobs on certain sites that we would be told, look, uh, you know, I don't care what corners they cut, uh, Appearance is 90% of acceptance on this job. And it was just, you know, it was just kind of that way. And that's, that's, you know, that's the way a Pharisee is. It's, you know, it's got to look right. And to a believer, we want, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So we want to live from the law's spirit, not just its letter. And God actually promised this in the Old Testament. If you'll look on your handout at Hebrews 8, verse 10, Paul is quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Well, how? Well, this is how. See, that's what a colon means. Uh, You know, and I know that I know that, you know, the message translation is something that's uh, easy to read. Well, if all you're going to do is read the Bible, read anything. Okay, uh, yeah, read anything. But at the point at which you want to study, you need accuracy. And here's what a colon means. See that, see that colon after the word hearts? That colon means this is how I'm going to do it. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Psalm 37, verses 30 and 31, The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God, now that's conversation for you. The law of his God is in his heart. So what? Well, now we've got a semicolon to tell us so what? So none of his steps shall slide. We have been set free from external restrictions so that we can keep God's regulations from the heart. What does that mean exactly? Well, two things. Let me show them to you. Let me show them to you. I want to show them. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and then 1 Corinthians 10. They're both on your handout. Here's 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I am addicted to ministry so that I will not face the bondage to addictions. Okay, verse 10, or chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and 24. All th- watch, he said, it starts off the same way. Look at what's different. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Well, that's, that's crazy. 
every man another's, another's wealth. Let, let no man sit. But, but wait, hold it. Now we've got a comma after the word own. Do you see that in verse 24? Let no man seek his own comma. Well, his own what? Well, okay. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can legitimately insert and read all sorts of things in there. Let no man seek his own freedom. Let no man seek his own pleasure. Let no man seek his own happiness. Let no man seek his own wealth, but every man another's wealth. Now, that doesn't mean you're trying to steal their wealth from them. That means you're seeking to make them wealthy. So make them wealthy by building them up. Because we always have the right of spiritual self-denial. And we can exercise that right because we live in the cross. Watch, Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That is the scriptural right of self-refusal. So we're both interested in and able to exercise that right. Why? Well, because of Galatians 5.13. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another so that we can become unstuck from stupid sense. And this is number three. We have a progressive sensitivity towards sin. Now, this is the opposite of our culture. The conversation of our culture does not go in this direction um, because in their conversation, progressivism is defined as openness to one's own definition of, of what you think you should be and glorification of your own sin. So I am proud to be non-binary, LGBT, queer plus. You know, that is not what happens when you get saved and born again because now you're in Christ and His Holy Spirit is in you. So this is our third point for study. Well, no one can be holy without the Holy Spirit. An ungrieved Holy Ghost is always, always, always going to be perfecting your holiness. The only way you can stop it it's when you stop coming to church. And as a consequence, you stop really reading your Bible, and you go into reading maybe other things about the Bible, whatever might make you feel good, and you stop being involved in ministry, and you stop all of those things, and you, and you try and ignore it, and you try to hide it, and you try to bury all that stuff. And, and all I have to say is, how is that working for you? So that's why I can't explain this passage without peppering it with so many appropriate cross-references today. Because the Word of God always does the work, not magically, but wherever it is followed and applied. So we have an increasing sensitivity to sin for five good reasons. First, letter A, because we hate our sin. Verse 15, for that which I do, I allow not. Uh, in other words, I'm doing things I forbid others to do. <laughs> Well, explain that, Paul. Well, I think I will right after the colon. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. The closer you are drawn to Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you, 
the more you will hate the sin that you discover in your life. And how do you draw closer to God? Well, David tells us, Psalm 119, verse 104, through thy precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. You know, obviously, if I'm hating every false way, I'm drawn closer to God. So second, we are sensitive to sin, letter B, because we grieve and mourn over our sin. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul lived in Tarsus. Tarsus was a province of the Roman Empire. And the Romans had a very effective way to punish convicted murderers. They would bind the dead body of the victim to the person who was convicted of killing them. And then the murderer had to remain strapped to that dead, decaying corpse until he himself died from its infection and disease. So we ourselves are born again. Our spirit is quickened, brought back from the dead, and our soul is redeemed. But our body will not be touched until either the rapture or the resurrection. So we are all still souls living in a dead and dying body. And therefore, third, third, let her see, we do not want to commit the sins we do. Verse 16, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. That means it's, it's better for me if I don't break it. And even if my sin is planned and premeditated, while my emotions may very well be in it, my heart's not. And so then forth, when I do it, this is letter D, I am surprised at the depth of my own sinfulness. I mean, I'm stunned. Sometimes it just takes my breath away. I fall for the same old okey-doke. And I wonder, what is wrong with me? And the world tells me I'm okay and that I, that I should affirm and I should repeat to myself. I should tell myself I'm okay. And you know, even if I start believing that, I know it's not true. So in the final analysis, this is letter E. I am willing to own the sins I commit. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I excuse it until I can't justify it anymore. And I can't pretend it never happened. And then when I try to blame others, that always backfires on me because I still have to deal with it in my conscience. Verse 17, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that it is in me, that is in my flesh, the body of this death dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. None of that, none of us find that in ourself. Paul owned his sin and so should you. If you, if you ever want to be truly spiritual and not carnal, you, you got to do this. Because the brokenness and humility itself becomes your strength and your healing balm. And we get unstuck from sin because in the final analysis, this is number four, we have a new source of victory. So point three is not the last point. It just opens the door to this one. Notice how Paul immediately answers his own question in verse, from verse 24 in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. 
So there's one law, one, one Lord, and two laws in this verse. One law condemns you to death. The other is no good because it only points out the working of the law of sin. But because there is a Lord over those two laws, he inserts his own third law, which we will see in chapter 8. Check this. On National Back to Church Sunday, that's September 19th. That's when you're supposed to be inviting all your friends to come to church with you. Because like, hey, this is back to church Sunday. Why don't you just come with me on that Sunday? And, and, and so next Sunday, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit until September 19th, when we will be in chapter 8. So why do we have a new source of victory? Well, first letter A, because Christ imparts his imputed righteousness in us and reproduces it. So your victory does not come through counseling or therapy or support groups or education or job opportunities, although the devil may back up off of you from time to time to make you think it does. See, here's what you miss. This is our fourth point for study. The Christian does not get victory over sin. He gets the victorious one. And if you have not put your faith in the living person of Jesus, you can't even start the road to victory. 1 John 5, 4, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And, the, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Faith in what? Well, we are back to biblical authority. That is what gives victory to the born-again believer. John 16, I've overcome the world. Okay, you're going to have tribulation. It's all going to be a hard test, but I've overcome the world. And so faith in the things that Jesus spoke, that the apostles and prophets spoke, and the scribes inscripturated, and the priesthood of believers transmitted, and God had translated, and that you can read right now, faith in that, why don't you? So we have a new source of victory in a culture in conflict with Christ. Second, letter B, because we progressively identify in Christ and yield to the influence of the cross. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 17, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. For what cause do I do that? So that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. My time is up today. I thank you for years. Let me give you one more verse, though, before we go. Colossians 1, verse 27. To his saints, God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is it? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, okay, Alan, what's my specific application? If I want the victory of being unstuck, well, let me just spin it to you as what I will call our fall philosophy. I believe people want to be taken someplace when they come to church. Now, not all people, I understand that, but um, I want to take you someplace when you come to this church. So uh, let's, let's forge an alliance in the Word of God together to, to do that, and here's how. Number one, Sundays. Okay, well, you know, if you're coming back post-COVID or pre-next pandemic or whatever, whatever it is, then do things the right way. And, and since you come here, serve here. And 
worship one time slot on Sunday and serve the next. I mean, some of you may already be going to an adult class, and that's fine, and nothing prevents you from going to an adult class and, and then serving if you want to, and then catching up with the worship online. Okay, that's whatever, however you want to do it. That way the devil, the devil, in order to get you out of here, it can't just take a casual decision on your part. You need to serve. You need to be ministering to people. So he has a hard time messing with you. Number two, weekly. I'm going to suggest you do Sunday plus one. Be a plus one Christian by adding at least Sunday evening. When we start the Sunday evening services in Awana back up in September. Or Wednesday evening. Or Saturday morning. Add that to Sunday morning. Are you through Discipleship One? We, had, we have at least 25 people that came through Discipleship One in the last year, and that's in the midst of a pandemic. So, so these next four Saturdays in Discipleship Two are really important because last Saturday, which you can catch up on, and the next three are all going to talk about how to disciple someone else. And, you know, God wants to turn you around, but what that means is you need to turn around and disciple somebody else now. That's how the turnaround goes. So, you know, all sorts of things to do. Let me suggest a new paradigm for our men. Number one, lead your family. Get involved in being at church so you got some place to bring them. They want to be led too. Number two, lead your ministry. Get involved serving so you have some activity that you can bring them or other men to. And number three, disciple, because we need more men like you. Have you connected with Jesus? Have you prayed and asked him to become your Lord? And if you have, what is your relationship right now with the Holy Spirit? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Are you even a spirit-born person yet? Or do you only have physical birth and you've never been spiritually born again? You can determine your spiritual birthday today. All you have to do is pray. Say, God, save me for Jesus' sake. I trust Jesus today for eternal life. And I know that's not the end of the conversation. It's, it's just the beginning. But save me now because I trust in the finished work of Christ to save me from my sins. And I know that you'll honor your son Jesus by just saving me in response to me asking you. And if you pray that, will you thank Jesus by coming to the front letting us know so we can rejoice with you. I mean, I want to take just one more minute and, and give you something that will tell you how to grow in your faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, Lord's Supper. That is life to you. Invite somebody to come and do not miss Jesus next Sunday.